This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. There's a little appetizer for Mark chapter 7, continuing in our series about Jesus in Action. Mark chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. And hear this in the context of this prophecy from Isaiah that we heard. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. If you would follow Jesus' journey, as Mark describes in the opening verse of our passage, you would see that he is taking a very, very roundabout route. He's not going straight. He's not going direct. Jesus seems to be meandering in such a way that some people wonder if Mark was even familiar with the geography of Israel and the surrounding areas. And the the reason is that Jesus is following God's GPS. GPS, God's plan of salvation. That is what Jesus is following, not what seems most efficient and most direct to us. Jesus is never lost He's never wandering around trying to figure out where he is. He knows exactly where he's going because he is being guided by the Holy Spirit every step of the way. And Jesus is outside the land of Israel. He started in Tyre where we heard about this woman last week, the Syrophoenician woman with the demonized daughter that Jesus cast out. And then Jesus heads north to Sidon, 20 miles north. He's in the ancient land of Lebanon, which we heard mentioned in Isaiah's prophecy. And he's going up through Tyre, through Sidon, and then he cuts north. He's up in what would now be Syria and even going down through Jordan into the Decapolis, which were 10 cities colonized by Gentiles, by Greek speakers. And these 10 cities were known throughout the ancient world, and they had been planted, they had been founded in what was formerly formerly Jewish territory, part of the ancient kingdom of David. But now there are Gentiles living in there. And there's a lot of conflict, ethnic conflict, between these Greeks, these Gentiles, and the Jews. And the Jews are always looking for a chance, some political opportunity to get these ten cities back into the land of Israel where they belong. And the Gentiles are very suspicious, and they're having none of this. In fact, in AD 66, When the beginning of this Jewish rebellion against Rome happens, the Jews in the Decapolis rise up and they are massacred by their Gentile neighbors. 
So this is an area simmering with ethnic tension, and that is exactly where Jesus goes, because he's fulfilling these words of Isaiah 35. Jesus is the God who comes with vengeance, with retribution, and with salvation. And wherever Jesus goes, the desert, as it were, springs to life, and there's healing, and there's salvation, and there is rejoicing, not just within the land of Israel, but in the Gentile nations all surrounding God's promised land. And it is amazing when you read the book of Isaiah that Isaiah is writing when the first hordes of the Assyrians are coming to the very gates of Jerusalem. And here is this prophet, when the land of Israel itself is under threat, and people are anxious, how is God going to save our tiny little country? Isaiah is speaking forth these words of prophecy. There is salvation coming, not only for us who sit in darkness in God's promised land, but the islands and the coastlands far, far off are going to rejoice with the salvation of God. Talk about amazing faith and talk about a word so glorious and so full of splendor that it could not even be received by the people to whom he is speaking. And here is Jesus in the land of Israel under Roman occupation. And wherever Jesus goes, into the land of the Gentiles even, salvation begins springing forth. And Isaiah's glorious prophecy is about to be fulfilled. The Gentiles are going to stream up to the mountain of the Lord where the light of God's Messiah is shining. And it all happens through the person of Jesus. So here is Jesus in the ten cities. We've actually already encountered one of the ten cities of the Decapolis already in the Gospel of Mark, the city of Gerasa. Do you remember when Jesus crossed the other side of the Lake of Galilee and there was that demonized man? He's in the cemetery. He's naked. He's howling like a beast. He's cutting himself with stones. And they try to chain this guy down because he's so berserk and so crazy. And he just snaps these chains. And Jesus shows up, casts a legion of demons out of this man. They jump into this herd of pigs. Pigs go splashing over the side of the cliff. And this man who begs Jesus, please let me come with you. And Jesus says, no, go to your family and friends and tell them everything the Lord has done for you. There is one missionary in this land of the Decapolis, one and only one. But he has a story of deliverance and salvation so remarkable that the word begins to spread and people's ears are perked up. And when to their astonishment, Jesus shows up outside of the gates of the city. Everybody knows who he is. Everybody, it seems, except for one person. This man who is deaf and can hardly speak. Now, I don't know if anyone's asked you, would you rather be blind or be deaf? Think about that for a minute. Would you rather lose your sight or lose your hearing? probably most of us would choose to lose our hearing. Our sight is so precious to us. But in the ancient world, everyone would have chosen to be blind rather than to be deaf. Because if you were blind, you were still a member of the human race. You could hear language, and you could reason, and you could think, and you could have a relationship with people. The greatest of the Greek poets, Homer, the Odyssey, was a blind poet, and yet 
It seemed he had some special inspiration, some special spiritual sight. But if you were deaf, and Socrates and Aristotle talk about this in their writings, they discuss, someone who's deaf and can't hear, are they able to reason? If you don't have language and people can't communicate to you, can you reason? Are you at a level above the animals? And their conclusion was, no. In an oral culture, language was so precious and so central to what it meant to be a human being that if you could not hear and therefore could not speak, you were essentially cut off from the human race. You were trapped in a silent world. And this spilled over into the Jewish understanding as well. The most important command in Jewish religion still today is Deuteronomy 6 verse 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That is the Apostles' Creed of Judaism. And the rabbis discuss this. The very first word is hear. And they ask themselves, if you're deaf, can you obey this, the most important of commands? And after some debate, they concluded, no. If you're a deaf person, you cannot obey God's law in the most important way God commands. So for them, if you were deaf, you were on the level of slaves and women, I'm sorry to say, and the intellectually disabled. You could not sign a contract, and you were not held criminally responsible for your choices. In fact, in the rabbinical teachings, if you shoved a deaf person and hurt him, you would be punished. But if a deaf person shoved you and hurt you, they would not be punished because they're just don't have the intellectual grasp to understand what they're doing. They don't know the choices, their responsibility and their moral choices. So this is what it meant to be a deaf person in the ancient world and the land of Israel. And he was deaf, he couldn't speak, and surely he couldn't have read or written because he was, it seems, born deaf, cut off from the world of language. So everyone else very likely knew who Jesus was except for this person. He sees people's lips moving around him, but he's cut off from the good news of this Savior. And there he is. He's sitting in his house when Jesus shows up in town. And some people, Mark tells us, they're just some people. We don't know if they were family or they were friends, or perhaps were they just some people in town who saw the miracle worker, the magician showing up, and they were like, oh my goodness, We've got to find some disabled person somewhere that we can grab and bring before Jesus so we can have a spectacle we're never going to forget. It could have been like that. And they just burst into this guy's house, grabbed this person by his robe, and dragged him out to the center of the marketplace. We have to imagine this deaf person, this mute person, being very confused and perhaps even frightened by this situation as he shoved forward to the front of the crowd to this person that everyone's staring at. And these people, the some people, they come to Jesus and they beg him, lay hands on this man. They don't just want a healing. They know exactly how Jesus is supposed to work. Lay hands on him. That is the way you heal That's the way we've heard Jesus healing, and they're asking Jesus, lay your hands on this man. But guess what? Jesus is never trapped in some rigid method of working. He doesn't always save in the same way. 
He doesn't write everyone's stories by putting them through the photocopier. Every person's story of Jesus, everyone's encounter here is a special story written by Christ himself. And the way that we expect Jesus to work and the way that we even demand that he work is not always the way he's going to respond. And first of all, Jesus takes this man aside. He wants to deal with him privately. Because Jesus is not about creating some spectacle of grandeur for the crowd as everyone oohs and ahs, as the spotlight shines in the center of the stage and the organ music plays and the smoke machine billows upwards. Jesus is not about creating some televised spectacle to delight and wow the crowds. Jesus does not treat the sick and the disabled as props for his miracles. He sees them as human beings created in the image of God and people who need his love. And so he's not going to do something for this confused and frightened person in front of the crowd. Jesus takes him by the hand to somewhere private. Let's step behind this hedge or into this person's front porch. It's just going to be you and I, and I'm going to do something for you. Jesus' dealings are always personal, and they are always specific to the needs, to our very specific needs and our very specific burdens, Jesus is a very precise physician. And that's how he's going to deal with this man. And man, this is not a miracle like we've encountered in this gospel at all, is it? This is a, this is a weird one, people. It's this elaborate five-step process that Jesus takes this guy through after he, after he brings him aside privately, first of all, he puts his fingers into this man's ears. Then, secondly, he spits. The Greek word for spit, by the way, is pituo. Isn't that lovely? He spits, whether it was on the ground or on his finger or directly on this guy's tongue. And then he touches the man's tongue, thirdly. Fourthly, he looks up to heaven. And then, with this deep sigh, he says this word in Aramaic. Ephatha, be opened. It's this five-part process that Jesus is following. Now, why on earth would Jesus work in such a bizarre way? Here in our previous story, he'd cast out the demon from this possessed girl from a distance. We don't even know how the miracle happened. Just when Jesus was done talking to the woman, the demon was gone. But here, he's doing this very strange and this very bizarre process. You know what explanation makes the most sense to me? Is here is Jesus dealing with someone who was deaf and confused and frightened. Jesus cannot speak to him because this man cannot hear what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not just going to force a miracle on some confused person. He's acting out what's about to happen. He touches his ears, first of all, looking this guy in the face. He touches his tongue. And then he looks up to heaven, hearing, speech, God. You see this? He's doing this nonverbal communication with this person. And do you not love the compassion and kindness of Jesus? With this deaf person, with this disabled person, Jesus is not going to ram through some kind of healing. He's taking the time to explain to this person, this is what's about to happen. And this is where 
the power is coming. Something from God is about to happen to these ears and this tongue that have been shut up for so long. He's not a prop for ministry. He's not just a piece of background scenery while Jesus hogs the stage doing his thing to wow the crowds. Jesus loves this man, and he loves each person in this room. He's not trying to ram salvation down our throats or force some confusing, frightening process upon us. He deals with us in kindness and gentleness and compassion. And I love that about Jesus. There's a a famous Canadian. His name is Jean Vanier. He should be much more well-known because he's still alive. He's in his 80s. And his father was the governor general of Canada. And Jean Vanier, he got his PhD in Catholic philosophy, but he left that to go to France to care for people with severe intellectual disabilities. This super brilliant, super educated man started this whole uh, series, this whole family of communities around the world called L'Arche, the Ark, to bring severely disabled people into community together. You should go check him out on YouTube. He's like the super sweet old man with big bushy eyebrows, and he talks so sweetly of the love of God being for everyone, including these people. And he says, you know what? We tend to value people according to the kind of power they have and that we can somehow have access to and leverage or how smart they are or how much money they have or how beautiful they are. And so often we treat people in order to use them for our own advantage and have some kind of, some kind of angle to get ourselves ahead. He said, you know what? With these men and women and children, there is no angle you can have. They can give you nothing except love. Love, to love and be loved, he says, is the most important thing about being a human being. And here are these people created in the image of God, no less precious than anyone in this room. And where we might be frightened and even repulsed by people with disability, God is not frightened He is not repulsed, but he steps toward them, just like he steps toward each one of us. And who here does not have some imperfection of body or mind or spirit that also falls far short of what God created us to be? But Jesus sees and values the essential humanity in each and every person, including this man. And What's so striking about this miracle is how much touch is involved. This is not a miracle Jesus is going to do at a distance. He's deeply engaged with this person in almost an invasive way. I mean, would you let someone even very close to you stick their fingers in your ears or spit and then touch your tongue? I mean, that is uncomfortably intimate, isn't it? And that is how deeply Jesus is willing to engage with this deaf person. He does not keep himself sealed off. There's not a pane of glass between Jesus and the world. He's going around touching the unclean and having contact with deeply needy and broken people, including ourselves. Jesus is willing to engage with you at the deepest 
and most intimate level. He's not frightened. He's not repulsed. He's not keeping himself clean and at a distance. He's rolling up his sleeves and engaging as deep within your heart as he possibly can. And then Jesus lets out this deep sigh. It's translated sigh, but it could also be translated as a groan. This agonizing groan that Jesus lets out after looking up to heaven in prayer. And this groan, I think, is partially a groan of grief over the ravages of sin. Do you remember when Jesus went to Mary and Martha after their brother Lazarus had died? And he's telling these sisters, I am the resurrection and the life. And he knows exactly what he's about to do to Lazarus. But even so, Jesus weeps when he encounters the grief of these sisters. And that word weeps in the, in the Gospel of John is a weeping with anger. Jesus looks at us and he looks at this world and he sees the terrible ravages that sin has made. And the tragic way that people are bearing these heavy, heavy burdens on their shoulders. And the suffering that people go through in their life. And Jesus weeps with anger. This is not the way God meant the world to be. And this is a world of sin and death and suffering. And Jesus is not far off with his arms crossed saying, well, this is your mess now, boys. Jesus weeps with grief and he groans with anguish when he sees how people suffer. And it's a groan as well, I think, of Jesus agonizing in spiritual battle. Because this is not just a healing, it's a kind of liberation that Jesus is about to do. And he's groaning in battle like an athlete, about to engage in a healing of a deeply complicated case. Do you remember earlier in Mark, Jesus felt power going out of him when that woman reached forward and touched the hem of his garments. There's somehow there's an expenditure of power from Jesus when he heals people and he's summoning up his strength so he can heal this man and he groans and then in Aramaic he says this word, Ephatha, be opened. And Mark very wisely translates this word for us so we don't think it's some kind of magical incantation that we can copy and, and harness the spiritual power. It's this single word of command that Jesus gives. And Jesus is speaking not to the man, but to his ear. It's a one-word sermon to this man's ear. Be opened. And at Jesus godlike word of command at that very moment his ear mark says is opened we could translate unlocked the ear it's opened up and his tongue is loosed and what mark literally says there is that the chain of his tongue was broken it's a miracle of liberation because this is this condition it's a kind of bondage it's a kind of imprisonment and enslavement that this man has been locked into, this silent world cut off from everyone else. And Jesus has come to bring freedom. And it's a freedom that comes through miraculous 
power. That's what Jesus has come to do for this man and what he's come to do for us. Jesus is not, he did not come to this earth merely to speak some words of advice and insight and philosophy and, and recommend some ways that we can improve our lives. He comes as the liberating warrior, his robe dipped in blood to conquer and crush the enemies of the human race and to rescue those who've been locked down to the dungeon of darkness and to bring them into the light of God. And maybe none of us here have experienced this exact miracle because God works in no two ways alike. But we've all experienced the liberating power of Jesus if we belong to him. And when we put our faith in Jesus and when we cried out to him, He came into our lives with power to free us from the realm of sin and Satan and death. So here Jesus frees this man's lips, his tongue, and he begins to speak plainly. The odd thing about this miracle is that we're not told what this man's first words are or or what he says. Here's this man. He's been given the gift of speech. And what's Jesus' first command to do with his tongue? Hold it. Uh, Buddy, the first thing you need to do is is be quiet. You need to be quiet now. Isn't that that funny? See, part of having the gift from God is knowing when to restrain it, isn't it? To discipline that gift. And just because we have the gift doesn't mean we can go spraying it around everywhere indiscriminately. That freedom of our tongues and our ears and our bodies and our souls is meant to be used in obedience to Jesus' commands and in his service. And Jesus, you see, he doesn't want this man and his his friends, his companions to go telling everyone because he doesn't want to turn this act of personal compassion into a public spectacle. He doesn't want the news cameras there. He's not trying to get publicity. He doesn't want to be perceived as a mere wonder worker or magician. Jesus has something far greater to give to people, and he doesn't want them to misunderstand. But the more Jesus urges them and commands them, don't tell everyone, it just has the opposite reaction. And they go out and they preach and they proclaim more boldly and with less restraint than ever. I mean, would that not be a terrible problem to have? And I I really do need to talk to you guys because the amount of evangelism in this church has become excessive. And guys, we talked about this last week. Stop sharing the gospel with people, okay? But you guys won't listen, will you? You just keep on sharing and keep on telling everyone. Would that not be a good problem if we had to pull in the reins a little bit and how much we were speaking about Jesus? That's the problem that Jesus faces because these people are not just amazed. They are overwhelmed with amazement. They are gobsmacked. Their eyeballs are hanging out of their heads as they behold what Jesus has done for this man. And what they proclaim about Jesus is this. He has done everything well. He's done everything well. And with their Bibles in our hands, we can hear this echo from Genesis chapter 1. When God creates the world he steps back and he says, this is good. My creation is good. What I have made is good. 
and I have done everything well, and there is blessing and joy throughout my creation. But guess what? Ever since Adam and Eve ate from that fruit, God can no longer look at his creation and unreservedly say, it is good. Because there are now shadows in God's world, aren't there? And there is darkness in our lives. And there is an evil creeping about God's planet that he has to come and deal with in Jesus. And now what Jesus is doing in the Gospel of Mark is going about making everything well again. So that God's word of blessing and endorsement can be spoken over all God's creation, especially human beings that God created in his own image. God created this world, and Jesus came to rescue this world, not to crumple it up and throw it in the bin and start over, but to rescue this world, to take shattered and broken and defiled people and make them pure and right and whole again. And that is very, very, very good news for all of us. And Jesus has spoken this word over everyone who believes in him. It is well with your soul. It is well. And we hold on to that word in hope, don't we? Because there's still some brokenness in our lives, and there's still some darkness that needs to be dealt with. But Jesus' power and presence have broken into our hearts, and nothing, nothing, nothing can ever expel him again. Everything Jesus does is good. He has done everything well. Even those things that confuse us, and there are many of them, and even those things that seem to work at cross purposes with God's plan, even those things we say in faith with the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is doing everything well in my life. We receive that in faith, and we hold on to that in hope. See, none of us, none of us are as we should be. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher, described human beings as a race of fallen kings. We're a race of fallen kings, and even people at their most depraved and their most broken, we still see the traces of God's image upon them. We still see that divine nobility stamped upon their character. But oh, even in the best of people, we see the ravages of sin, don't we? And the tragedy of kings and queens who are wandering far from their kingdom. We are a race of fallen kings that Jesus has come to rescue and put us back on the throne again. And he groans still in grief and battle over the remaining sin and darkness and suffering in our lives. He groans in grief and battle because Jesus is the same Jesus still. See, this deafness and this, this muteness this man experienced, it has a symbolic aspect as well, doesn't it? The Bible talks about deafness a lot, and rarely, actually, is it about literal deaf people. It's about the deafness of our hearts, that we are unable to hear God's loving voice. And we find ourselves trapped in a silent world of our own making, 
And the only way we can hear again is if someone from the outside steps in and puts the fingers of God into our ears and says, Ephatha, be opened. So that God's word of love and power and salvation can come into our hearts and so that our tongues can be freed from their chains so that we can speak words of praise and thanks and witness for God. That's all from the power of God. See, everywhere God's church gathers, including here in Tbilisi this afternoon, we are experiencing the fulfillment, at least in part, of that text from Isaiah 35. We are men and women and children from the farthest reaches of the world, not just Persia and Egypt and these lands that Isaiah knew about, but people from some very bizarre and far places indeed, that God has reached out and he's brought salvation into our lives. And he's made the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame dance for joy and those who had no voice speak the praises of God. Shall we pray and thank God for this great salvation? Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the gift of your son that you did not abandon your creation to darkness, but you came to rescue and to redeem. And we groan before you, God, at the sin, the suffering, and the bondage that remains in our own lives. And we cry out to you, please, Lord, come and touch us. Speak words of love and power into our lives so that we can praise you, so that we can dance for joy at the salvation you bring. We are so helpless without you, Lord, and there's nothing we can do to fix our own situation. We're so thankful that you look at us, you see value, value that you created and you put within us, and you choose not only to rescue us, but to crown us with glory and honor so that the fallen kings and queens would be fallen no more, but reign with you forever and ever. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.